I always try to communicate to students that art is not only about what the artist wants you to see, but it's about how you can explore it to create meaning for yourself. I'm Ruba Kanaan, an assistant professor at the Department of Visual Studies at UTM. And most importantly, to know how to ask questions about it. And those questions are relevant for you, for your worldview. Perspectives on Art. The guest on this episode of View to the You, a historian of Islamic art, talks about art and architecture and how it enriches our lives, what we can learn from it, and the stories it tells about people and places. Hello, and welcome to View to the You, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. On this episode of View to the U, my guest is Professor Ruba Kanan from UTM's Department of Visual Studies. She talks about her research, which focuses on art, artists, and art production, and takes a deep dive into the formation and meanings of mosque architecture in pre-modern Muslim societies around the world. On the new season, called Without Further Ado, I will introduce you to some of the new people from UTM's vibrant and ever-growing scholarly community. And as her opening quote illustrates, Ruba is also interested in how questions and ideas are shaped around art, art objects, and their creation. This made me think of a podcast I heard recently, because we all know I listen to a lot of podcasts. The Next Big Idea podcast, though, that featured an interview with author Susan Cain. And when speaking with host Rufus Griscom about the music and lyrics of songwriter Leonard Cohen and its huge influence on her, she talked about how Cohen had woven in some of the ideas from the Kabbalah, the mystical side of Judaism, into his music. I acknowledge here that there are differences between Judaism and Islam, but stay with me for a second. In this interview, Susan talked about a metaphor Cohen used that conjured the idea that all of creation was originally a single intact divine vessel, but when the vessel was shattered, we are now living in this, quote, world of brokenness, but equally a world of beauty, end quote. The idea is carried through that divine shards from this vessel are scattered all around us in the mud. And one of the things that we can do in our lives is to notice and pick up the shards where we find them. The shards that you notice and pick up are going to be completely different from the ones that I notice and pick up. But the point is that we can all see them. I extend this metaphor to some of what Ruba talks about in this interview, that we find stories and significance in art and in objects, but that the meaning we come away with will be unique and individual to each of us. Over the course of today's interview, Ruba talks about her range of art exploration, which spans several centuries and various parts of the world, from China to Spain. Ruba also talks about her history with the work she has done with museums, particularly her association with the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto as part of their leadership and outreach team, and how those associations have informed her research. Ruba Kanan is an assistant professor of Islamic art and architecture in the Department of Visual Studies at U of T Mississauga. 
Most recently, she was the Barakat Senior Fellow in Islamic Art at the University of Oxford, where she obtained her master's and doctorate in Islamic Art and Architecture and Archaeology. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Architectural Engineering at the University of Jordan. Ruba has taught at UTM for many years, but recently joined the Visual Studies Department as an assistant professor in 2020. I am a historian of Islamic art, so I research the arts that were created by Muslims and other people, minorities, people of other religious groups that lived historically within Muslim-majority lands. So that gives a very broad range and very broad geography, anywhere from the 7th century till our current days, and it's a very broad geographic area that goes from China to Spain. My particular interest in all that is I like working with objects I like looking at objects and exploring stories that tell us about people that emerge out of these objects. I also understand, just from looking at your website, that you're currently researching and focusing on Friday mosques, which I know nothing about. And so I'm just wondering, and as for a forthcoming book, if you could explain a little bit what Friday mosques are, providing some context, but also maybe talk about what they represent, their function and their meaning, and then what is your particular interest in this research? So uh, my interest in objects in general and the way that objects tell story goes from big to small objects. And I think of everything within the same idea of what can this image tell me behind it? What can this building or this object? So for my research on uh, Islamic architecture, I'm focusing on the Friday mosque. Muslims, wherever they are, have a ritual practice related to regular prayers, daily prayers. They can pray in their homes or in mosques. But on the Friday, they usually go to what's called the Friday mosque or the congregational mosque. And that's usually the main monument in a neighborhood or in a city, historically the biggest monument in the city. They're usually large buildings, they're beautiful, they're beautifully built and crafted. They are decorated with the types of art that would make you want to know more about them, whether it's marble, whether it's wood carving, whether it's inscriptions, writings. All these things that make these monuments very exciting to look at, very interesting. And of course, because they're the most important monuments in a city historically, there's so much written about them. Anyone who visits the city goes and visits the congregational mosque. Anyone who's there on the Friday goes to the mosque and they leave their impressions and their stories, including what they think of the architecture, what they think of the art there. And as a result, they're very rewarding to work with from a historical perspective and from an academic perspective. They're almost a lens on a society at any specific moment of time. My interest in Friday mosques is that from our current perspective, we think of sort of this ritual Friday prayer and these Friday mosques as something non-changing. So we're more than 440 years of Islam as a religion, that these monuments have always been there. And that idea of everyone going to the Friday monument, the Friday mosque, is something that has been continuous and non-changing. And Another thing that's very interesting and important about uh, these big mosques, these Friday mosques, is that although Muslims throughout the world share a similar set of beliefs about the ritual practice, the buildings themselves are different in each region, in each country, based on the local building materials, local architectural styles. So they also give us 
a very broad range of how Muslims chose to express themselves architecturally in the different regions. So a congregational mosque, for example, in Mali looks very different than a congregational mosque in Iran or in Turkey, yet they fulfill the same function. So they're also a way to look at the diversity of artistic expression amongst Muslims throughout the world. What my book and my research looks at and explores and the questions it raises is about the history of its evolution as an architectural monument. So in the early period, so more than 1400 years ago, you had one mosque in very few major cities. Eventually, there were more of these Friday mosques built in many of the main cities, but still it was one mosque in the city only. And as a result, all the patronage, all the donations, all the art was concentrated in one area. Over the centuries, they started building these monumental mosques in different neighborhoods. And here we have this whole idea about the shifting of the understanding of space. So from a single monument designating a place as a city into that monument designating that place as a neighborhood. So we see we can follow the urban evolution through tracing the history and architecture of these mosques. So there are two perspectives. One is the monument itself and the evolution of style and technique and elements of design. And there is the location of these buildings which tells us more about the evolutions of cities and neighborhoods and ideas about space that we now take for granted in as urban planning. And I guess there's two questions popped into my head as you were talking. If these mosques were in cities, would people travel far to get to them coming from outside the city? But also, maybe this isn't a fair question, but I'm just curious in the research that you've done, if you came across a mosque in particular that was your favorite to study or one that really stood out for you for any particular reason? Yes. From a perspective of a city, these mosques, as I said, they're sort of central, they're important, they're big, they're impressive. So people usually would travel from different parts of the city to perform their prayer amongst the larger group of people. We have wonderful descriptions from the 10th century and 11th century of travelers going to the city and saying, we see the people praying on the Friday and they spilled out of the mosque into the streets, into the bazaars or market areas around. So it is clear that people are interested to go and perform their prayer in congregation with a larger group of people. But that has not always been the case. In the maybe first five centuries of Islam, it's only people who are close to the mosque who would go and pray in any specific mosque. Later on, it became an important social and, of course, ritual belief to sort of go from any part of the city to these mosques. One of my favorite congregational mosques, or we also call them Friday mosques, in the pre-modern period in general, is the Great Mosque of Isfahan, or the Friday Mosque of Isfahan, a city in modern-day Iran. Now, that city has historically been an important trade center, and it was a capital for one of the Muslim dynasties that ruled in Iran in the medieval period called the Seljuks, and later on in the 17th century became the capital of another ruling dynasties called the Safavids. But 
for me, it tells the story of that monument that we call the Friday Mosque, because the original building was built in the 8th century. And we can read the history of architecture in the city of Isfahan in that building, because every dynasty, every ruler would add something, would decorate an area, would add a side building, would add a niche or what we call an iwan, a recessed niche, entrance niche, will add a minaret, a tower for the call for prayer. So in a sense, it's a building that grew both organically to fit the spaces around it within the city, but also with a purpose of patronage to reflect each ruler's ideas of what's the most prominent style, what's the most important thing for them to add, including decorative elements like glazed tiles of different colors, but most importantly, inscriptions stating that such and such ruler at such and such date has added something to this mosque. It's almost, I've been here, I've contributed to the history of this great building. So although most congregational mosques have this very long history, this one is really unique and you can almost study the history of architecture in that part of Iran through studying that mosque. That's very cool. Yeah, but this one is just one building that's a palimpsest. If you could perhaps tell me a little bit about what led you to studying this area of research in the first place. I'm always curious about these stories. Mm. Well, I grew up in Jordan in the Middle East, a place that is an open air museum. Everywhere you turn your face, there is a historical monument from I think 7000 BC is the earliest in Jordan all the way into the modern period. So I've always been interested in the built environment and the stories behind it who built these monuments and why. Not only the style and technique, but the people behind these buildings. So when I started studying Islamic art and architecture, I got interested in mosques. But like all good stories, it usually starts with a coincidence. I was traveling in the Middle East and ended up visiting Oman, a country in the southeastern corner of the Arabian Peninsula. And it's a beautiful country with the majority Muslim community. And I was looking at the architecture and it just caught my eye that it's very different from everything I studied and from everything I was researching. I was still a graduate student studying Islamic art and architecture. So that led me to look at mosque architecture in Oman and from there to raise the question, what else is happening in mosque architecture around the world? And how do these congregational mosques, these Friday mosques, differ in different parts of the Muslim world? What stories do they tell us? And the story of the book evolved out of this uh, trip and observation, which happened 20 years ago. Wow. And But that also then makes me think of the question, do you find that there is a great degree of variance between, say, how a mosque and its congregation will operate in, say, Iran versus North America? The interesting thing about mosques in the diaspora in general is that they reflect, of course, the diasporic community itself. Usually where they're coming from ends up being the style of a mosque that they try to build. So Canada is a great example, and there's actually been a new book that's been published on mosque architecture in Canada, tracing the 100-year history. The earliest mosque was built in the 1830s, actually, in Alberta. 
And these mosques reflect the desires, the memories of the diasporic communities. So usually there is a preferred style that they ask for and build. This is recent. The earliest mosque in Canada was built by the person who was available to build a place of worship was a Ukrainian builder. And as a result, the earliest mosque in Canada looks like a Ukrainian church. And you still can go and visit it and see it. More recently, there's more ability to import the architectural style that is relevant for that community. So from a visual perspective, these mosques are very diverse in diasporic communities in general, but in Canada in specific, and they reflect the places where different communities came from. And also from a function, they're different because most mosques now in Canada act as mosques and community centers. So they have other activities and spaces attached to them that may not have been needed in historic cities and historic mosques. So in a sense, the mosques continue to evolve to fit the need of the communities. That's very interesting. And I understand that aside from your research, you also have a real professional background um, and longstanding, you know, association with museums, architecture and community based art education. So I'm just curious how and if you could speak to how your professional background has informed your research. I think I was very fortunate to be already in Canada and teaching in Canada when the Aga Khan Museum was first being discussed and planned as a project. And I joined the inaugural team of the Aga Khan Museum three years before it's opened. So sort of shaping the ideas about what the museum is about, what stories it wants to tell, how are we going to communicate to people and communities around the art and the stories related to the art. This is very unique because the Aga Khan Museum is the only museum whose collection is dedicated to Islamic art in North America. There are other collections that are larger, but they're in broader museums. It's one of the many galleries representing different groups. But this is a different in the sense that the whole collection is based on arts from Muslim communities all over the world, different periods, and it has some really beautiful objects. One of my major roles there is I was responsible for educational and scholarly programs, which means in a museum, communication about the art to different groups of visitors, whether that is a child, whether that is a scholar, and whether that is a family coming for an outing. So it was very interesting to move out a little bit of the scholarly communication that I would have with my colleagues in a conference or the role of an educator talking to undergraduate students, focusing on specific areas that I'm interested for them to learn into the more sort of public-facing communication about art and education that you only get in a museum experience and sort of especially that is a foundational experience. You are learning how to communicate with these public at the same time as you're writing and publishing these catalogs and so on. So I always think that I've been very fortunate to be in that role because not only it influenced and it impacted what message we started with at the museum, which I've now left six years ago, into taking that experience of public-facing communication about my research, especially into the undergraduate teaching experience, 
because our students come from very diverse backgrounds. And how do you make something relevant to the students so that actually they can, we hope, enjoy the teaching, engage with it, see why it's relevant to them? And as part of my experience in museums and sort of the importance of linking museums and educational programs in general, once I moved into the University of Toronto, I initiated with some of my colleagues an agreement between the Aga Khan Museum, the Royal Ontario Museum and the University of Toronto. And we now have a memorandum of understanding, part of which we have experiential learning for undergraduate students. We do placement for some of our art students in both museum institutions. And the other aspect that I feel that sort of my museum experience brought to my research is the whole area of interest into how museums shape narratives about cultures and civilizations and how these narratives are linked to the history of museums. And of course, museums are part of the broader colonial enterprise around the world. And as a result, the narrative you have of any non-Western art is shaped usually by that colonial experience, whether that was immediate military colonization or whether it was a cultural hegemony. And as a result, the stories in Western museums are telling that story. So that experience made me develop that area of both research and teaching. It's very relevant for non-Western art more generally, but I can bring it forward through my experience in teaching and researching Islamic art and architecture. That's amazing. And so this is a very sort of broad question, but I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to, because you're preaching to the choir, I'm a big fan of art and the humanities, but how can art and studying art help? students think more critically about history in general? This is an important question because many students think that art is something alien to them, that they cannot relate to it, or that it's something trivial and they label it as entertainment and so on. And I think when you start communicating, when you start unpacking any art object, whether that a painting, a sculpture, a building, a beautifully designed manuscript, when you start unpacking it, they start thinking and being involved into how it is relevant to them. I usually do an exercise with my students that I call imploding the object. And I usually just bring any three-dimensional object and ask them to break it to this element and look at what questions they can ask about it. Invariably, they ask questions about not only its shape and style and color and design, but they start asking questions about labor, how it was made, how it is marketed. What does that tell us about society? They definitely start talking about the environment. What is its impact on the environment? Is it something that has more than one life? Is it something that can be reused? And they start looking at whatever that object is from a perspective of what questions can I ask about this that are relevant from my perspective? So I always try to communicate to students that art is not only about what the artist wants you to see, but it's about how you can explore it to create meaning for yourself, and most importantly, to know how to ask questions about it. And those questions are relevant for you. 
for your worldview, for what your interests are. And as a result, our interests are different. So we cannot create art as telling a single story. And this is how I try to bring them in. And it is interesting. After sort of trying to break art from this privileged discipline that is relevant only for the elite or those who can culturally engage with it, those who have the time and the financial resources to be able to do that, will you break it into something that, well, art is all around us. How is this relevant to you? Why is it something that you have a stake in? And I think it works with students because our students live in the world of the visual. How are these images meaningful to you? I try to bring it to their interests. I try to talk to them about the difference between their exercise, their daily activity of creating memes, and how does that relate to what we're trying to achieve in studying art and studying the visuals throughout history. That's great. That's so interesting. And the season of the podcast is also meant to be, I know you've been at UTM for a while, but I know you're kind of new though to the tenure. Yes, I am. I always tell everyone I'm in the first year of tenure track. Yes. You know, this season, though, is meant to be sort of an introduction to some of the newer people on campus and just to get to know you a little bit. So I just wondered if there was any interesting hobbies or research anecdote. Well, I am what you call a returning academic. I'm someone who moved continents between my first academic appointment and then coming to Canada 15 years ago. And then I started teaching and then took a break from teaching to work in the museum world, which meant that I created a different experience, but at the same time, I had to think of how and when is the right time for me to go back to academia. So I'm now back to research and teaching in a way that is a new beginning. And I appreciate that the fact is in a Department of Visual Studies, and I appreciate that it's at UTM. But it's almost a new beginning after a very long history of doing things related to the field. So I always think that it is interesting to bring that experience to my research, to my teaching, to my interaction, because I'm both very fresh and new, bringing a new vision into my world and department here. But at the same time, I have a long experience in the field. I think it speaks to a lot of things that are going on right now. I just heard some fact the other day about a lot of people in their 40s and 50s and probably beyond are rethinking what they're doing career-wise. And this is all because of the pandemic. It's shifted people's experiences and like, I don't know, maybe given more thought as to what they would actually really like to be doing. When you shift careers, this happens. It's just that it's always something I wanted to do. I know we were all kind of sidelined during the pandemic. And I just wondered if there were any movies or music or art, something that maybe kept you afloat or you were happy to take in as we were sidelined. I think like everybody else, COVID changes your habits and forces you to rethink how you're going to use your time, considering that it's a longer period of time where you have to control on a daily basis. I think for me, the biggest impact was reading. I am and have always been an avid reader. I'm interested in literature. I like reading novels. That's something I've always been interested in, and I like historical novels, and I like biographies. So I think I read nonstop. 
I read a biography, for example, I think it was topical at the time, a biography of the 19th century pandemic. And it was a beautiful book to read. But at the same time, I read a biography of Erasmus, the European thinker. I read a biography of Ibn Khaldun, the 14th century Muslim thinker and the inventor of the field of sociology as well. So I think reading is what kept me sane enough, Lord, during COVID. But at the same time, I made a point of taking long, long walks all the time, anytime that is a possibility to be out. That's perfect. And so with that, though, I'm going to say thank you very much for um, taking this time and telling me about your work. You're welcome. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guest, Professor Ruba Kanan from the Department of Visual Studies at UTM for being so generous with her time and for telling me about her research and work in art, architecture, and museums. I am definitely thinking about what she said related to the stories that objects, art, and design convey and just taking the time to reflect on the stories they might tell. I also want to give a shout out to the Next Big Idea podcast, its host Rufus Griscom, and the great interview he did with Susan Kane about her new book, Bittersweet. I highly recommend this podcast and that particular episode is a great and thoughtful conversation about the joy, connection, and creativity that might come out of a painful or sad experience. If you are a new faculty member at UTM, please get in touch with me. I would love to meet as many new people from our campus's scholarly community as possible. Also, if you can take the time to rate the podcast in iTunes, it helps others find the show and hear more from our great UTM researchers. I am embarking on year six for View to View. With just over 50 tracks, over 22,500 downloads and everyone's support, it feels like a wonderful achievement and undertaking. I am eternally grateful to the researchers who participated and those who have supported me. You know who you are. A heartfelt thank you to you all. Also, my article, Here, Here, The Case for Podcasting in Research, was just recently published in the Journal of Research Administrators in their Spring 2022 edition. Check it out if you get a chance. So much gratitude for all who supported me for the research and writing of that article, especially Devin Kruger for all his encouragement and wise counsel. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Terrific for his tracks, tunes, and support. Thank you.